Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 120. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 120 you're listening to, just in case you thought you were listening to some other show or some other episode. It is, in fact, number 120. So here we are. Got a great guest for you on today. I have Mr. Will Russell, who's the owner of Electric Wilberland Studio. He's also the chief engineer. That's located up in Newfield, New York, inside of an old Baptist church. Beautiful place. Lovely place. I've only seen it in pictures. I would love to see it in person someday, but uh, that's where um, Will runs the show. He's been in audio since the age of 17, where he started doing live sound. And and one of the most notable tours that he did was uh, mixing for uh, Rusted Root uh, from 94 to 95. But uh, yeah, cut his teeth doing live sound. He still continues to do that. He does uh, live sound over at some regional music festivals from time to time, jumped into audio production and and so he uh, records and produces mostly local and regional artists uh, and has been doing that for about 30 years now. So he's worked with uh, uh, the samples, which is funny because we have we both have done a samples record. That's the one band we have in common. Uh, he's also worked with Matter Rose, Martin Simpson, The Horseflies, Joe Crookston, and Donna the Buffalo. And he won a Grammy in 2009 for recording the, al- the album uh, Dugaman- Dugamanza with uh, a Cora player named uh, Mamadou Diabate. I, th- I think I'm pronouncing that right. Well, we'll see. I'll probably get an email saying, not exactly right. I, I do want to mention he does uh, part-time teaching of audio production at uh, the Park School of Communications at Ithaca College. So, so yeah, Will Russell coming up. So uh, next thing I want to talk to you about is a very sad situation that has occurred. And received an email today from one of our listeners, uh, Chad Stalker. And uh, Chad uh, alerted me to the fact that uh, we've lost one of our recording brothers recently. And I don't know if you all are aware of this, but there was a a terrorist attack in London recently where a person uh, ran into a group of people. And uh, Kurt Cochran and his wife, Melissa, were uh, on vacation. They're from uh, West Bountiful, Utah, where they run a studio, Onion Street Studio. And Kurt was killed in that attack, and Melissa is still in the hospital recovering. It's just, it's awful. And I know that anybody who's killed in any situation is awful. Uh, And I think the fact that uh, Kurt was a recording professional, uh, that just hits home for a lot of us. Definitely when I read it, it grabbed my attention. And uh, I wanted to make sure that you all were aware of that. Maybe you have worked over at Onion Street Studio, or maybe uh, maybe you've heard of it. But anyways, just want to uh, bring your attention to this. It's awful. Uh, There is a uh, GoFundMe page to help uh, Kurt's wife, Melissa, pick up the pieces here and raise some funds to, uh, you know, take care of what you take care of in the aftermath of something like this. So um, I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, sorry to hear that. And um, and I'm, I'm sure all of you are as well. So want to, of course, do as we do here on Working Class Audio we raise a coffee mug to Mr. Kurt Cochran from Onion Street Studio and say, uh, rest in peace, brother, and uh, a speedy wish a speedy recovery to uh, Melissa Cochran. Okay, moving on. I tell you, always tough to move on after we talk about something like that. If you have any questions or comments, obviously you can email me directly, matt at working class audio. That's Matt with two T's. I don't know many people that spell it with one, but you never know. So Matt at Working Class Audio, you know, feel free if you uh, if you know some recording professionals that, uh, you know, have been important to you, been a mentor or somebody that uh, has really inspired you, uh, whether you know them or not, uh, you know, pass their information along. Uh, if you've got email, contact, phone numbers, anything like that, that's always helpful. Uh, I am looking for, uh, I'm always looking for people to interview because uh, the show goes on, you know, a uh, new show every week. And ideally, I would like to get some folks uh, from outside of the United States, because that's where we concentrate mostly. And I would like to really uh, get into some other countries that we've never been into uh, and talk to some recording professionals from 
around the world. So um, I generally kind of shy away from people suggesting themselves, also looking for people with experience, people who uh, have been at it for a while, 10 years at least, so we can get some perspective and get some, you know, real world knowledge uh, passed along here. So speaking of real world knowledge, let's actually, I want to go back and uh, want to reach out to a, a friend of ours. We're going to, we've been doing a thing here in the monologue where we actually reach out to working class audio alum and uh, today's no different. So we're going to actually uh, uh, reach out right now. We're going to make a phone call to our friend, Ben Bernstein. And if you uh, remember Ben Bernstein, if you listen to the show, Ben Bernstein was on, um, that was show number 55. That was a while ago. Yeah, that was, uh, it was one of the shows actually we tried video and succeeded. And so that is one of the very few, uh, very rare shows that exist on video. I think that was a year ago, two years ago. Here, I'll tell you. Yeah, that was January 4th, 2016. So, uh, yeah, so let's actually, let's check in with Ben Bernstein. Let's see what he's up to and uh, have a short phone call with him. So, uh, yeah, let's do it. Hey, Ben Bernstein. How are you, Matt Bedrobe? I am good. I'm just calling to check in and see what you've been up to. I hear you've been over at uh, Bird and Egg recording uh, a new Americana record. Yeah, I was working with this guy named Keith Allen Mitchell, a local songwriter, and had a, just a great crew of musicians I have Jason Sloda on drums who does a lot of work at Tiny Telephone and uh, James Nash from the Waybacks came in and lent his guitar expertise that was totally awesome and the thing I just loved about it was you know besides the tones and the gear which we could talk about all day is just a just the honest experience of playing some music with some guys doing you know, two, three takes and let's move on. Or like, you know what, that first take, you know, whatever, it's Pro Tools, let's not even keep it, man. It's, we don't, we don't even want to hear that again. And it's such a refreshing way to make a record. Very cool. And you've been doing a, a side corporate gig for a small company. Yeah, there's this little company, you know, they got a few offices around the world, they're called Microsoft. And I do contract <laughs> work for them as an audio designer for Cortana, which is the voice of their um, virtual assistant, you know, comparable to Siri or Google. Some would say we sound a little bit better, but I don't want to go into that. Right, right. That's their Windows 10 thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We got Windows right. 10. Cortana is waiting to help you right now. I see. Any major changes in your uh, setup, workflow, lifestyle, anything like that since we last spoke? Not really. More than I just feel like, a, you know, I, I'm feeling like there's this I've got a good flow of, of, of music clients coming in. Sometimes it's a full record. Sometimes it's a song here and there. And that balanced out with having a part-time contract gig is a really, really nice, uh, a really nice groove to be in right now because, you know, I've got some pretty solid work going on and then I'm, I'm free to kind of do the musical projects that I want to and really put myself into them without worrying as much about what the bottom line is every day. Right. And, and just to be clear on this whole Microsoft thing, that's an audio based gig you're doing. Yeah. It's not like you're doing coding. No. Um, you know, it's what I call desktop audio. It's kind of like an audio gig without necessarily even having to have a microphone. Um, you know, they call it audio design. We, we do a lot of quality assurance. We do a lot of project management, but we also do a lot of experimentation with voices and different possibilities. You know, everything that's going on with AI, artificial intelligence and voice and, and, and data and what the world is starting to expect with devices. It's, 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 I feel like it's a little field that could, could explode and there could be a lot of opportunities and interesting things going on there. So I feel pretty lucky to be kind of Kind of there, kind of sometimes it's a sandbox and, you know, playing around with different, different programs. You know, there's some great little programs out there. There's this little plugin called Tracks um, that's uh, you, based on the Earcom research with, out of Europe um, for morphing mm -hmm. things and transforming things. And it's, it's, it's kind of nuts what you can do with a computer these days. For the listener, if you haven't heard Ben's full-length interview, we did it uh, – on WCA number 55. It was also one of the few episodes that we did video on. And that came, that aired actually in uh, January uh, 4th of 2016. So you can go back and take a listen to uh, or watch my interview with Ben Bernstein. So Ben, it's good to talk to you and thanks for uh, taking my call. Always a pleasure, Matt. Thank you. All right. Great to talk to Ben Bernstein. And as I mentioned several times before, 
Uh, check his interview out, number 55, WCA number 55. You can watch it on video on either our YouTube webpage, uh, YouTube, or YouTube channel, or you can watch it right on the workingclassaudio.com page. Uh, just find Ben Bernstein. Uh, all the shows are listed on the right-hand side. So all you got to do is hit uh, Command F or Control F and uh, look for Ben, and then you'll find him. Or look for 55, either way. Okay, so I'm cutting in here with a slightly different microphone. Uh, I'm out on vacation on spring break with my uh, family, and I was sitting down to edit the podcast and realized that the audio that was recorded through my good audio Technica mic was sabotaged by a clocking issue uh, from an experiment I had been running, and therefore the original audio for this interview uh, is full of clicks and pops. And so rather than try to do anything serious about it, you know, isotope it or whatever, uh, I decided to just give you the audio with the audio from my uh, laptop mic, which is where I had a backup version of it. So you know I, I always like to give you guys the best audio I possibly can uh, for a podcast. So I apologize in advance. This is not... Uh, ideal, but, uh, you know, you'll still get the interview and, uh, that's it. So let's get on with it. All right, here we go. Will Russell here on the working class audio podcast. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks. It's super nice to be on. Yeah. I was, uh, digging around in the internet and came across these amazing pictures and I was like, what is this place? It's Wilberland. <laughs> it's Wilberland. <laughs> you are in what is called Electric Wilberland. That is in uh, Newfield, New York, which is southwest of Ithaca. Correct. Where do you live? I live in downtown Ithaca in a little area called Fall Creek. Okay. And it's a very nice little neighborhood where you know all your neighbors and your neighbors have a key to your house and stuff like that. It's very very cozy. And Newfield has a very small population. As of 2010, it was just above 5,000. I'm sure it's yeah. grown a bit. Yep. Ithaca, New York is an interesting place. It's sort of like 10 square miles surrounded by reality. Mm -hmm. It's got Cornell University and Ithaca College. So we have a really rich mix of culture here. Um, Cornell in particular draws a lot of international students. So we've got people from all over the world bringing everything that's comes from everywhere else in the world to our little city here. Um, so Ithaca proper tends to be very left-leaning, greeny, tree-hugging. We all shop at the co-op and drive <laughs> Priuses kind of uh, vibe. But then you go five miles in any direction out of town, and it's rural upstate New York farm country with a sea of Republicans and this little bed of Democrats in the, <laughs> in the middle. And what's interesting to me is um, you are there... And I'm, yep. I'm not going to get all my geography right, but... Okay. So I'm just going to generically say upstate New York, but... Um, it's, te it's, it's technically Western New York. Western or, New York. Okay. Yeah. Upstate is like north of the city. Okay. Well, you, you have you, yep. you have Alan Farmello. Do you know okay. Alan? No, I don't. Okay. Alan... Where's he, where's he located? I got I to gotta look it up, but he, he's in like a... He's got a schoolhouse. Cool. And then you have Dave Fridman. Right. Yeah. With... His whole scene, that's about four hours west of here. Okay. You know, just as people on the East Coast tend to associate, you know, like, well, Los Angeles is just up the street from, yeah, down right. the street from San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. I, as a West Coaster, am imagining like, well, aren't all you guys like in this little area with a lot of trees and somewhere in New, you know, outside yeah. of New York? <laughs> kind of, sort of, only we're separated by large amounts of those trees and stuff. So I have to ask how... Yeah. How did Electric Wilberland come about as a space? That space is amazing. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to disagree. I've had Wilberland as a studio since 1988. Yeah, right. I'm still in a studio business after all of that time. So there, there's a story in there somewhere. I had a detour from audio where I, I was a repair technician for a company called Wang Laboratories. Mm -hmm. And I was a remote service technician. I was trying to get fired from that job. <laughs> This is all like life story stuff, but it's interesting and sort of all arrived me here. So in 1988, three sort of big life-changing things happened. My first wife decided she didn't want to be married anymore. My second parent died and Wang Laboratories was uh, starting to do that swishing sound as it was about to go out of business. And so I was looking for my way out and the company was offering these really nice 
early retirement packages are basically like, we'll give you a whole bunch of cash if, uh, if we let you go. I was getting with my boss and I was just like, let me go, let me go. I've, I'm starting this sort of recording thing and I'm tired of this job anyway, and you need to cut somebody. So why don't we set me up to look like your worst employee? And after six months of me looking like the worst employee, the company still didn't recognize that I was the first one to go. So I ended up quitting. But there was a time there where if I didn't have service calls, I was going to this little 300 square foot cinder block building that I had set up as the original Wilberland and doing sessions and telling my clients like, hey, I may go have to go fix this printer up at Cornell or I may have to go work on this computer or something like that. So I was kind of two-timing and I was, it was kind of funny because for, the, for the, the computer repair job, I was wearing a suit, right? It's a big corporate gig. So I'm working at this little hovel of a studio um, in a suit because uh, I had to be ready to go when my beeper went off. So yeah, I, I, was, um, I did it because I wanted to start getting my skills together because after having those three life-changing events, I was like, all right, so I basically have had the wrong life for seven years. Had a nice house, nice car, corporate job, the whole thing. And it was all feeling really hollow to me. Like, why am I, I'm doing everything that American culture tells you you're supposed to do. And so why am I miserable? And sort of the, th the one, two, three punch left me going, all right, what? Right? It's like, what are you trying to get through to me here? And it was really obvious. We, you stopped doing what you love. You stopped doing what fills you up. So I took some money from having sold the house that I was currently living in and rented this tiny little place for $300 a month and uh, bought some gear. I bought a, a 16 track half inch Fostex machine and a Soundcraft 200 Delta 24 channel mixing board, a couple compressors, a handful of microphones and opened up shop. The funny thing is, was that I had accidentally opened up a studio in the middle of two existing markets, not even realizing I sort of blundered into it. There was a bunch of people who had eight track analog studios. You're working in their house, right? And you got the drum set up in the living room and you're singing in a closet and the guitars in the bathroom and stuff like that. Um, and then there was three 24 track, what I'd call proper studios. But everyone was frustrated doing the eight track thing because it kind of sucked singing in a closet and you know, you're sort of cobbing your way through the recording and no one could afford the expensive places. So here I am with a 16 track machine for 25 bucks an hour. And I had also had been doing live sound for- Since you were 17, right? Yeah, yeah, ever since I went to Ithaca College. So everyone knew me as a good live sound guy. I kind of rocked it in, in all the local clubs. So when Will Russell opened up a studio, you know, it's like, oh, here's that live sound guy. He's, yeah, we should go to him. So it, it, I like I opened up and then within like a month, I've got all the business I could possibly want, which was really put the pressure on getting rid of the, the computer repair job. Um, so I, I just got really lucky. I just happened to provide services in a vacuum between two existing markets. And I had uh, a good reputation from having been a live sound guy. So it kind of just poof, there it was. And so I existed in this tiny little place no windows. As a matter of fact, we, we used to call what we called oxygen breaks, where the whole band would pile out of this room and we'd open the door and everyone was like, <gasps> right? And there was a coffee shop around the corner, which uh, made good money off of me and my clients because it was just around the corner. So you go there and have sandwiches and coffee and then you come back. And, you know, it's like the usual packing blankets and carpet that I pulled out of the carpet bazaar, carpet store dumpster and tapped up on the walls and you know, just like a make it work kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. And then the road that that was on got turned into one leg of the main highway that goes through town. So it stopped being a quiet residential neighborhood. I suffered through construction and put all my recording off into the evening when the trucks weren't there. And then when the road opened up and there was three lanes of trucks idling out my front door, I was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. And I'd been looking for another place and this realtor calls me up and says, hey, I got a problem for you to, to you can solve a problem for me. I've got this... 4,000 square foot architects building in another part of town that uh, I need to have a, a business client in. Otherwise, it's going to be uh, rezoned as residential and I have to tear the building down on this. You know, it's like a quarter million dollar property. So then Wilberland packed up in a truck, went to this architect's building where I had a tree growing through a four-story foyer in the middle of the uh, building, <laughs> right? I had, I had plate glass, four stories of plate glass where I could see Cayuga Lake. Like my mixing position was on the second floor and I had the, my console set up and I got my two speakers and the, the view through the window was a straight shot to Cuga Lake. Beautiful view, horrible acoustics, I'm sure. Oh, it was awful. 
it was awful. But I'm as a live sound guy, I'm used to going into a different club and working with the room acoustics of whatever you got, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. know about live sound, it's like being given a different guitar and amp every night. And things I learned uh, was how to deal with your existing room, right? So you make it work. You, le- you pay attention and you listen. You go, okay, every time I do a mix here, I got a ton of 200 hertz. So don't put so much 200 hertz in there next time. So that was good for a couple of years. Then that building got sold, which was what the realtor wanted to do. So I've got an all points bulletin to all my friends, like I need a place. And I'm going around looking at warehouses and stuff like that and thinking, well, if someone's foolish enough to give me 200 grand, I might be able to build this into a space. And I'm getting really frustrated. And then my friend, uh, Matt Sacucci Murano, who's a very good engineer and killer drummer and good producer said, hey, I found your new studio. And I'm like, cool, where is it? He says, well, you got to promise me I'll, you'll go look at it first. I'm like, well, where is it? And he's like, no, promise me. He says, there's an old church for sale out in Newfield. I'm like, get out of here. I'm not, you can't buy an old church. He says, well, you promised you'd look at it, so go look. <laughs> so I pull up in front of the place and I'm like, okay, this, even from the outside, the whole vibe of this is like completely dream come true because there was always a part of me that thought having a studio in an old church would be a totally cool vibe. And I was just about to leave because I didn't want to look at something I couldn't have, you know, that sort of mentality. But then happy realtor lady pulls right up behind me and says, oh, sorry, I'm late. huh? You know, let's go inside. And literally, I'm two steps in the door and I'm like, oh, my God, it's my studio. Right from the from the view of the front door, there's a room straight ahead of me, which is was the sort of overflow room from the sanctuary. And then there's this main room. And I can tell just by the way my feet sound walking across the floor that the acoustics are just what I'm looking for. And so this will sound crazy to someone from San Francisco, but I bought the building for $55,000. Oh God, I think I'm gonna have a heart attack. Yeah, right? Oh, wow. Different world, right? So you wonder why we live up here in the sticks? That's why, right? I bought a church for 55 grand. Let's just say that again. You bought a church for $55,000, and what year was that? That was 20 years ago. Even if it was a hundred grand, twenty. It's appreciated to hundred and twenty by now. Oh my god! <laughs> so, um, but still, I was like, I don't have. You know, I can't. How am I going to pay for that? Right? I don't have that kind of bread. You know, it's fun telling this story. It seems like a f- complete fairy tale. But so I got all my books together and I went looking for mortgages and stuff like that. Some guy bought my dream. Right? He says, "Well, looking at your books, you're clearly not an accountant because according to your books, you've got enough money to pay for this cash." I'm like, yes, yeah, so I obviously don't. He says, well, here's, we can set you up with an SBA loan and blah, 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 blah. I had also remarried at that point in time. I married the right woman the second time around. And my father-in-law threw in, you know, some money for a down payment. And so I got this place and then I borrowed some more money a little later on. I mean, the, the, the big loan, the SBA loan paid for construction. I had all new electric put in. I had to put in a soundproof wall between the sanctuary and the, uh, and the overflow space. If you go to the website, you can see all these pictures. So it'll have some context. Oh yeah. Um, Cause it was one big open space with just some double doors and no heat in the big room. There wasn't any, for, I had to put in a furnace. So a whole lot of like fixing up an old building stuff, right? The building was built in 1910 and acts like an old building. You know, it's constantly falling apart in various different places, but it's totally cool. So anyway, I did all the construction, had three major album projects backed up. And so just had to sort of like throw and go. I was still using, I was using a one inch Tascam 16 track and a newer Soundcraft Delta board had acquired some more stuff. And then ADATS came around. Remember ADATS? Oh, I remember it well. Right. So 16 tracks was getting a little tight, right? And this new technology is like ADATs. That's amazing on a VHS cassette tape. Are you kidding me? So I bought three of those and the remote controller. And now, now I'm a 24 track studio, right? So like, okay, I'm going to raise my rates. I'm in a new place, right? I raise my rates like five or 10 bucks an hour and no one even flinches. Buying this building was like this ridiculously un-Will Russell-like financial risk. I'm a total play it safe kind of guy. Like if I'm going to do anything like this, my first thing is like, how am I going to land? How bad is it going to hurt? <laughs> right? I'm like planning for failure at every step of the way. And that way I'd never stick my neck out too far. So this was a big deal for me, but business just went crazy. But that was like, that was around 2001. Remember the, the recording industry in 2001? Everyone was having a great time. Like 2000, 2001, business was banging, mm-hmm. right? Um, and no one saw that a couple of years later, all of a sudden it was all going to start falling apart. 
So with all this business and the sort of this new stature, I had some decisions to make. I'm like, okay, so I've got these ADATs now, but I still get an analog board, but I kind of got to up my game now, right? So what am I going to do? Am I going to go, go looking for a better mixer? Like I was thinking, I was, I was really fond of like a, a like a, a Trident ADB, you know, or some like, you know, a, a real desk, right? Um, and what manner of two inch 24 track was it going to get? And then I was talking with Matt, who became my employee. And it's like, well, what about this? You know, everything's going digital, right? What about Pro Tools? So I looked into that and it seemed pretty great. With my computer background at, at Wang Laboratories, I was certainly unafraid of computers. And I totally got, um, even when I was doing analog recording in the original Wilburland location, you know, we were, we were striping tape with, with MIDI time code and, and syncing, you know, syncing uh, sequencers and, and stuff like that. So I, I was very, very aware of how music and computers integrate pretty well. It was an easy match mm -hmm. for me. So fortunately, I bit on the Pro Tools thing. I'd been buying a lot of gear from a company called Boynton Pro Audio, and I was doing, um, once I got the, I talked to them about the Pro Tools stuff, they said, well, we need somebody who can help some of our other clients with the transition between analog and digital stuff. And so how about we establish a relationship where we help you with some of the pricing on some of this stuff, but you do pre and post sales consulting on Pro Tools because you will have weathered the, that transition. So I had this I had a strong relationship with with this music retailer, right? This is this is a type of company that if I read it in Mix magazine about this new compressor that I had this giant excited feeling about and I had my credit card in my hand, they would talk me down if they didn't think it was the right type of gear for me. Be like, "Yeah, so I know that reviewed really well, but from our past conversations, I think you'd rather have this. Why don't I send this to you and you see how it fits?" Okay. That, right? That's a good relationship to have. Yeah. So bottom line is I got a whole bunch, I got a, a crazy kind of flagship uh, Pro Tools TDM system with a Pro Control control surface because I didn't want to be without knobs and faders because I'm an old school analog kind of guy. And, and like all of the plugins as NFRs and stuff like that. So I basically had a style in Pro Tools rig, a natural inclination to know how this stuff works because my brain goes there. And then I had this really great relationship where I was helping other people make that transition. So yeah, going to going Pro Tools was the right thing for me to do, but I went whole hog, right? It's like do, for me doing Pro Tools without a control surface is a complete drag. Pushing a mouse around on a screen, like forget it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I want to close my eyes and move a fader or turn a knob. That's a very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> it occurs to me. You, you answered a few, a few of my questions right up front. Yeah, it, friends of mine and, and interns of mine are, were quick to remind me that that I shouldn't be nervous because once I start talking about audio and studio business, that, that it's going to be the challenge to shut me up. All right, so, well let me let me dig into you. Yeah, so direct a me a little bit here. I've I've got some I've got some questions based on what you just told me, and and you tell me if I'm wrong about this. You you strike me as somebody who basically has their shit together. I have everyone fooled. Tell me about your your ways of dealing with money and gear and your business. Like what's, what's your philosophy in general about all of this? Well, I keep trying to go back to what little I've learned about basic business practices, which lasts me about as long as saying that sentence, because there's a million things in this business that defy that. I mean, you know, what's, what's basic business 101? F find out who's got the money, find out what they need and sell it to them. Right? So, Musicians, what? Right, it's like I fail on step one. So a whole a whole bunch of my attempt to maintain good business practice kind of falls away. But I sort of plan on failure at every step, so I don't stick my neck out too far that often, unless I think it's a really sure bet. Here, here's a, a quick story that sort of informs the answer to this question. Early on in the beginning of Wilburland history, um, I had an opportunity to buy a uh, a U87. Right, which would have at that point in time was clearly the most you know the the most I'd spent uh, on a microphone and was of the highest caliber, and uh, but as it turns out, it was pretty whooped. And so I talked to my guy at Boynton Pro Audio. His name is Bill Scranton. I should call him out. He's amazing, and he says, "Well, you know, there's this guy named Klaus Heine, um, who you should call and talk to 
uh, about getting that microphone fixed up. So I talked to Klaus, and I don't know whether you've heard about Klaus, but he's an encyclopedia of Neumann microphones and a fine, fine human being and just will do anything to help you out. So he says, I can fix it, but by the way, I do these modifications. Are you a radio station? No. Can you see a radio transmitter from your uh, building? No. Uh, well, that's good then, because we can remove about 80% of the circuitry between the capsule and the output amplifier, blah, 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 blah. Long story made short, he sends me back this microphone that completely redefines everything that I thought I knew about what quality audio was. But in the course of the conversation, he presented the idea of microphones as investments. That sort of corresponded with some other lessons that I'd learned earlier on, where I'd done a bunch of studio tours um, with a friend of mine who knew a bunch of studio owners in New York City. I remember going there and I was like, wow, here are these, these are top-notch studios in New York City, and they all have the same stuff. Like, they've all got this 1176 thing, and this, they all got this LA-2A, and they've all got microphones made by this Newman company, right? <laughs> and, right, as a matter of fact, they've got a whole locker full of them, and they're all made by the same. So why is that? And I did some research, and I realized that there's some timeless pieces of gear that you keep onto, one, because they make a statement that no other gear can make, but two, because they appreciate in value. Right? They'll at least hold their value, mm -hmm. if not increase in value. And so that's good business advice. Right? So, um, so I have quite a collection of Neumann microphones that are all worth at least twice what I paid for them. So that turned out to be a good business investment. But there's other things that you buy that you buy just because you want them. You know? and the, I mean, you're supposed to invest on stuff and then you're like, well, what's your return on the dollar? Right? How long will it take you to, to recoup your investment on this? Well. Buying a new compressor, there's no, you're not going to recoup the investment on that. You're not earning more money because you have it most of the time. Well, you're like, certainly not going to get your money back on the Pro Tools rig. Right. Or, well, or you're not, you, will, you will make money on it but through the business, but you certainly are not going to. It's not going to appreciate in value like, a, right. like the microphones. Yeah, I mean, like buying the Pro Tools rig, is like, that's your basic tool, right? So that does pay for itself. Like you would have zero business without it. And now you have some business. So you can sort of, on paper, you can see there's a value there. But like if I, if I fancy some new tube microphone, I just went through this recently. You know, I wanted to have some nice 47-ish tube mic. And so I shopped around and got it. It was a lot of money. And I was like, this is just me blowing money away because I want something, right? No one's going to come to the studio because I have this. They don't, no, most of my clients don't even know what it is. Right. So how do I manage it? I just try to, I try to research the heck out of stuff. I try to buy stuff that has a reasonable chance of appreciating in value. And I have rules for myself about impulse buying. Like I just don't ever do it. Like what, if I, how, how do you prevent that? I give my, I, I give myself, uh, I force myself to take at least a couple days. The way my brain works, and I'm sure it's not that different from a lot of other people. It's like, when you decide you want something, you kind of want it. And if you got your credit card in your hand and you got a phone call, like you could really make a bunch of dumb decisions that way, right? Because it seems like the right thing at the time. But then if you sleep on it a couple nights, you're like, yeah, you know what? I haven't needed that in 20 years. Why do I need that now, right? Is it going to add some value to the services I provide? Probably not. Is it going to make me feel happier about the work I do? I'm not so sure after a couple of days. Right. So you kind of have to sit on stuff, really. And then the other thing that I need to do because I'm in an old building is I need to save money for things like paint and concrete work. And and like I've spent a ton of money on, on the roof and my furnaces are now 20 years old. Right. So I've got infrastructure investments that some studio folks have and some don't. Right. So it's that stuff's more important because this building is an investment also. Right, and if the if the roof falls in, then the whole thing's kind of blown. So, you talked about the research that you do when you consider a piece of gear. What what kind of research do you think people need to consider? I think that you can get a lot of information from the internet, but it's really dangerous because the internet has has crazy trends, and people fall in love and out of love with things. Remarkably, I just had an experience on an online forum recently where the ultimate lesson I learned was it doesn't really matter whether everyone in the world thinks that this is the best piece of gear in the world. If it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you, right? And that's a hard place to come, by, come to when, you know, it's like when everyone's saying A and you're kind of thinking B, you second guess yourself. 
And you're like, okay, well, maybe I'm just not hearing it right, or maybe I'm not using it right, or maybe my item A is broken in some way if all these people think it's the best thing. But it kind of doesn't really matter, right? It's just like, does it work for you or not? If it doesn't, okay, get something different that does, right? They're all just colors on your paintbrush. I watched a series of videos in doing some research on you on YouTube, and um, there was one video you, you said you talked about advertising and word of mouth. And I really, yeah. I thought you really kind of got to the heart of it. You basically said any money that I've spent on advertising has just really been wasted. It's word of mouth. It's the experience people have with you. And that, that carries much, I'm paraphrasing, but that carries much more weight than uh, any money spent on an ad in a magazine or whatever. Absolutely true. It's, um, yeah, I know which video you talked about. The, the, um, the bottom line is, is that as a studio owner, I'm a service provider, right? When I, when I first sort of started this leg of, of doing recording work, I had to decide sort of between two paths. Was I just going to chase talent, right? In which case I can ride in on the coattails of only recording really great folks, right? And you know, anyone who's done recording for a while realizes that the way you make a great recording is you start with great players with great instruments playing great music, and then you don't screw it up, right? So I could go that course, or I could be a service provider, in which case I was going to have to be willing to record anybody who could afford the rate, right? And I chose that path, and I'm super happy that I did. And with that idea as a service provider, it's like, as long as you don't suck at what you're doing, what people are going to remember is what the experience of having your services rendered were like, right? Did they, you know, so in this particular situation, it's like recording is this incredibly emotionally volatile scenario, Right. And I, I sometimes talk about this with people who are going to start uh, or thinking about doing this. It's like, so think about the recording process with your band. You write some songs, right? Where do your songs come from? They come somewhere inside you, right? From, from some high point or low point of your life, or it's a story that you're telling or whatever. And then you come in with your band, right? Who are all your, your peers. And then you try to play that song to the best of your ability with all of these people who matter to you. And then what do you do? You come in the control room and you listen and you talk about everything you did wrong, <laughs> right? With all of your friends talking about everything you did wrong. And then you go out and you try it again. And then you come back in and you talk about everything you did wrong, right? And then you probably do, you know, at least another take of that, right? So that environment requires somebody at the helm who can manage that energy so that people feel safe in that environment, right? The, the, yes, you're being judged, but it's not a personal thing, right? It's like, yeah, so you blew, you blew chunks going into the B section. Okay, we'll do it again. It's not like you suck as a person because you did that. It's like you made a mistake because you're trying to do this ridiculously complicated thing with your body where you're trying to do all this amazing motor skill stuff and also being emotional at the same time, right? It's like, that's a lot of work and you had a human moment. So, Let's fix it. So it's where having a bachelor's degree in psychology comes in handy, right? Because that's what I went to Ithaca College for. Although that was just kind of being a psychology major was sort of a statement of the obvious because I've always been a people watcher and I've always been reading people's energy. And I always watch, like, I, I read people's posture and like, oh, I can tell that that person's feeling threatened by that person or whatever. So, um, yeah. So at the end of the day, it's like, how was the experience, right? How did that feel? Right? Did did you did you uh, was it a positive thing? Do you feel like you that the process made you stronger or filled you up or made you richer somehow? Because the process of recording has value on its own. Right? Mm -hmm. The whole creative process, even for forgetting the end product, the process has value. Um, you learn so much about yourself in the in, in that way. Taking that service provider approach, you essentially end up dealing with a mixture of some amateurs, some pros. Oh yeah. Some weekend warriors. Yep. My personal experience that I've had in that situation, sometimes that's very rewarding because it's a it's it's a fun moment. It's a teachable moment for everybody. It's a yep. everybody gets to learn. But sometimes that can also be frustrating because some people come in with uh, a lot of preconceived notions and rules that they've developed based on their research. <laughs> right. And yeah. That can be a little bit of a frustrating experience. I guess I've been really lucky. Um, so part of that sort of service provider mentality and always like trying to, basically you sort of create an energy field around your business, 
mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's not just when you walk in the door, it exists with everyone who walks out, right? So like I've been doing this around here long enough that everyone sort of knows the vibe of Wilberland. Honestly, it's just an extension of, of me. You sort of create this thing around you. So yeah, I, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of records out there in the last 20 years that say recorded by Will Russell, Electric Wilberland, that are not good musical performances, but every, one, every single one of them remembers the experience fondly, right? And, we'll, we'll, uh, and from a strict business point of view, they will talk positively about the experience to all of their friends, right? My point is that uh, even if the band is just, a, you know, a, a, a bar cover band or something and they need to do a demo, right? And so they're, they're like amateur musicians and they're not that great. At the end of the day, I got to make music with a bunch of really nice folks. Like it's really, it's not, I don't, can't think of any time in my experience where I've had a combination of really not great musical talent and terrible personalities. <laughs> right? And right. part of that's just because I, I don't think that people, that people who have bad attitudes find themselves to me. Mm-hmm. Right? Maybe there's another studio somewhere where people with bad attitudes like to go. I don't know, but I just, don't, I don't just don't, I don't draw that energy. I don't put that energy out there. And so I don't draw that energy back to me. Right. So by and large, I get super sweet people who are doing the best that they can to make some music. And it's my job to figure out, okay, so what is the best that you can? How can I set up the recording scenario so that you can really shine so that you can play something that you didn't even realize that you could play? You want the muse to come and visit every single time. And so the muse will react based on whatever your current skill level is. But every, I've had some amazing moments with bands that were very average, but all of a sudden something just went bam and you had a moment and everyone in the room knows it, right? And then you captured that. So honestly, that's what I live for is those little moments where everything sort of clicks together um, and something that, uh, that's bigger than the combination of people there sort of just blossomed. And then we're all like, wow, that was incredible. You know, and I, I want to point this out for the audience that what you're doing and how you're doing it to me really truly defines the working class thing because you don't necessarily have to work with the most famous bands to be considered successful. To me, and especially, you know, listening to your story and doing my research on you, I'm like, wow, Will is very successful in what he's doing He's, he owns his building. He's got that game beat. So you're not sabotaged by real estate. You have repeat business. You invest smart, smartly in your gear. And you, like, once again, your, your clients may not be the most famous, but you're working all the time. And you may be working more than a lot of people who try to chase only talented, uh, well-known people well-known oh, musicians. Yeah. yeah. And that, that was, you know, when I, when I sort of came to that initial fork, that's what I was thinking. It was like, so if I, if I, if I chase the talent, I'll be working here and there. Right. I mean, I, honestly, I'm, I'm still surprised that I'm still standing. Like when the whole recording industry thing started getting weird, I was like, well, I just need to plan my exit strategy. Right. And somehow I weathered the storm. And I think it's because I stuck with the service mentality point of view. You know, it's just like, no, I'm going to make sure that everyone has a great time here and, and that um, I'm just going to be, I'm going to keep being who I am. Right. It's like, there's, um, here's Will's two rules for success. Don't suck, treat everyone awesome. Right. And you can add to that. It's like, recognize that everyone's got potential that you don't realize. Right. And everyone comes to you with a backstory that you've got no knowledge of. Right. So people walk in with loaded up with all kinds of life experiences and you have no idea what the potential is of that person who walks in the door. Right. Yeah. So they, they drove up in a beat up car and, and, you know, they don't look like your type of person, but I've had so many fantastic surprises where, uh, had I judged that book by its cover, I would have missed a really amazing opportunity. Right. I wouldn't have taken them seriously. I wouldn't have gone poking, you know, and they go, oh, I wonder what this person can do. Wonder if I move this, what if I have them stand here, if this is going to, if that's what they need, right? I'm, I'm super sensitive, not only on a business sense about, about uh, the energy around the studio, but I'm also super uh, conscious of the vibe in the place. 
I had a, a, a friend of mine who had a, a Lawson L47 tube mic. It's this big gold thing, right? And I was checking it out, thinking about buying it. And I was all excited about it, right? You get a new piece of gear. You're like, oh, you're going to try it on everybody. So I, I, you know, working with this woman and she's doing vocal overdubs and I kind of sell it up like, oh yeah, this microphone, it's got this tube microphone, blah, 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 blah. And I'd worked with her before and it's like, we're a couple takes in and she's not giving it to me, right? She's kind of just, I can tell that there's something that she's uptight about. And so I go out there and I'm like, so is the headphones not working? I got different headphones for you. Do you want to be in a different place in the room? And she's like, it's, I don't know how to say it. It's, it's really gold. <laughs> right? She couldn't get past this giant gold cylinder in front of her face. She's like, and I know that you, you really, you really want to try the microphone. I'm like, I don't care. I've got five other good vocal microphones. Let's just put something else up. How, how does this mic look? Right. I hold up an 87. She's like, oh, I like to look at that mic. Okay. We'll use that one. Right. And then boom, there's the performance right away. Will Russell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a break from our conversation with Will and check in with our friends over at Audio Technica. Take a little sponsor break here. Want to hip you to the ATM350A microphone system. It's basically a series of uh, uh, cardioid condenser instrument mics with uh, what's called the unimount components. And those unimount components allow you to mount these mics in a variety of situations on drums, on pianos, on horns, uh, including uh, woodwinds especially. There's a wide variety of mounting systems available. And as any Audio-Technica mic typically does, they can handle extreme SPLs. Uh, and they provide a crisp, clear, and well-balanced response for any instrument. So make sure you check that out over at uh, audio-technica.com. Well, let's get back into it with our conversation with Will Russell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Do you think the church and the amount of sunlight coming in there has a direct effect on people's ability or desire to record when they come Absolutely. in? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so. What, the the in terms of of getting people to come here, if I get clients to walk in the door, they will record here. Energetically, you walk in the place and you're like, "Whoa!" Right? I mean, the pictures don't really cover it. You walk in, it smells like an old building. The foyer's got all this this uh, oak woodwork, and then you walk into the sanctuary space, and there's these big stained glass windows, right? With and, and if you come in the morning on a sunny morning, it's it's like, oh. Right. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful space and it's got vibe for miles. I'm just so happy to come here for, for, for like every been coming here for 20 years now since I've owned this building. And I pull up and I in the driveway and I pull up the I turn off the car and I always have this little moment like, yes. <laughs> right. I get to come yeah. to this place. Right. I mean, it's like I'm so lucky. I have you sort of talking about the whole balance of of things. Right. And and and. Uh, sort of look, checking me out and realizing that I, I'm, I'm sort of that working class audio kind of guy. I have the best life, right? I kind of have, I mean, I don't want to gloat about it, but I totally do. I'm married to a woman who has health insurance, who is an artist who, <laughs> right? I'm not kidding, right? We, I've heard discussions about that in, on, on your programs before, oh, yeah. right? One of the secrets to success as a, re, as a recording person is to marry someone with health insurance. Because um, I'm sure not supporting a family with this. Right. I'm, I'm supporting, I'm taking care of my own expenses and I'm keeping the business alive and I'm not burdening my household. And I come to work and I do what I love all day and people pay me money for it. What else can you want out of life? I'm not going to get rich. I'm not working with, you know, all these stars, you know, but I'm working with people who are doing the absolute best they can creating art, right? Trying to communicate human experience and emotion amongst one another. And that's the whole point of it, right? Isn't it? It's like, yeah, we can geek out about gear and you hope for, you know, some, some uh, notoriety and stuff. And, and at the end of the day, it's like, did you move culture forward? Did you affect someone's life in a positive way? And art has the ability to do that. I spent a lot of time, um, I'm teaching part-time at Ithaca College now. Um, mm -hmm. I saw that. Yeah, which has been a ridiculously rich experience for me because I've had interns for a really long time. Um, actually, I, I went without interns for a long time because I didn't think I knew enough to have anything to offer. And then when I turned 50, all of a sudden things start, your life perspective starts changing. And I, I went from, I got to I got to hold my cards close to my chest so no one steals my secrets to, I know a ton of stuff and it'll be a total waste if I didn't drop some knowledge on some young brains. 
right? So I started getting some interns and that has been a ridiculously rich experience. And so the extension of that now is teaching part-time, but you know, these kids are, they're, they're drunk with plugins and they think Pro Tools is, is where the recording happens and stuff like that. And um, I'm like, well, first of all, just let's not forget about the fact that we're making art. Like at the end of the day, even if you're making a commercial, if you don't successfully sell someone why that product is superior to somebody else's, you've failed. It doesn't matter what plugins you use, doesn't matter what DAW you used, right? Doesn't matter what microphones you used. Did it communicate the message, right? Did it get through? So that's, that's what keeps me going all the time. It's like, I like to think that somehow I'm moving these waves of positive human experience out into the world. Even if it just stays within friends and family, that's got value too. I, I don't think you're going to disagree with me on this. I think that, you know, while we do have, we do place great value in gear, two things that you seem to be rich in is attention to the, to the relationship, to the, to the needs of the, of the artist coming into work. And you're also rich in, in a great space. And if I were to start over knowing what I know now, and also seeing your space, um, I think I would try to find some place with sunlight, great open space, great vibe, and because um, the gear comes. I mean, you can get the gear. Yeah. If you think about what made some of the you know the famous now sometimes closed studio spaces great, right? What was it? It was a uh, it was the sound of the room, and it was the people who were working there. Right, like I, w I remember wa I watched the Sound City documentary, right? Yeah. And I, I actually was kind of angry at the end of it because in my personal opinion, what made Sound City great wasn't the Neve, right? The Neve's a console, right? It's a piece of gear. What made that a great studio was that the studio had a vibe, right? And there was an and this was this energy field. Like, look, I mean, look at the artists that were through there, right? I mean, there's, there was a ton of really great albums that were done there. And that was because of the combination of the people and that the room apparently was a, a reasonable place to work. So, and yes, of course they acquired microphones and stuff like that, but the, the space is essentially it. Look at uh, Muscle Shoals, right? That room's got a vibe to it, right? It, there, you, you, any recording you heard there, that the energy of that space is in everything. It's just, I observe that here all the time. If uh, I do some basic tracking and somebody does vocals in, in their house, like I bring the vocal track back, even if it's on a good microphone and it's like, oh, that sounds like a bedroom. That's a terrible sounding <laughs> space, right? And then I have to do some all, all kinds of wacky stuff to try to bring that track back into the little bit of room energy that leaks into every microphone. Even if you close mic it, everything that's everything else in the the uh, atmosphere around that microphone is that room. So, and I think the other thing that people don't think about is that even if you can't find a nice space, there's a million nuances of how to get different sounds, even in what seems like a simple space, right? I mean, mm -hmm. th the corner is different than the flat wall, it's different than the one by the closet, it's different than laying on the floor, it's different than laying on the ceiling. Rearrange the furniture, you've got a whole completely different room. Right. And so for the for the people who can't go shopping for a big space, right? And I mean, can you? You can't in San Francisco, right? Hell no. no one can no one right. It's only because I'm I live where I am that I have the luxury of a space like this. Right. And also I, I should kind of clarify my thoughts on this in that not everybody needs a big open space. If you're making hip hop records, you do not need to have a church to make it in. But nope. if the world is, if your world is more acoustic, electric instruments, lots of people playing live together, you have a great space. Yeah. Yeah. And it's perfect. And, and the, the whole, the, the, the space makes sense with a sort of my ethic of, uh, of recording. And that is, um, I, at my gut, believe that you have a higher probability of, of making a musical statement if you have a bunch of people in the room playing together. I, I'm all about trying to get as many people making music in the same space as possible. And, and like, I have, I have no isolation booths in my studio. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. And that's, I mean, people can come into the control room if they need to, like if I've got a loud band and I got a vocalist, then you know I'll track in headphones and let them peer through the window and, and get a vocal there. But I, I want people in proximity to each other. Like if they're used to rehearsing in their basement, 
and they come in here and they're like, you know, oh, wow, we can really spread out. I'm like, don't spread out. Don't spread out. Give yourself a little extra room, but why come here and and change your arrangement when you're used to interacting with each other when your bass player is on your left and your, your rhythm guitar player is on your right? Like, why break that equation? Mm-hmm. Right? You're used to relating to each other that way. And so, I mean, that came from, from um, some lessons I learned when I was out on the road with Rusted Root um, in 94 and 95. I'd been working with them in the clubs and it's, you know, it's a six person band, basically a bunch of hippies with drums and guitars who had a, an incredibly important thing to say at that time, which is why they sort of blew up like they did, blew up in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember when we started getting uh, opening uh they got signed to Metropolitan Entertainment and t- took on management and the whole thing. And so they're getting put on as an opener with some bigger bands, right? So first time the band gets on a big stage, they're like, okay, we're going to do the rock star thing. And they spread out as wide as the stage, right? Only we didn't get a sound check. We didn't even get a line check, right? Because that's the plight of the opener. It's like, um, and so in front of their largest crowd, they played one of the worst sets of their entire history because they couldn't hear each other. They had no monitors. They had no connection with each other. And we didn't sort of get that. Then we, there was another gig. Same thing happened. We spread out rock star style, right? Another terrible gig. And I'm like, okay, so this time you guys just pile on top of each other in the middle of the stage. They're like, but we got all this room. I'm like, yeah, but you're playing like crap because you can't hear each other, right? Like last night you had no monitors because they just never got turned on. And the monitor guy took off for the opening act. So you couldn't hear anything. So let's huddle up like the tribe of hippies that you are, right? <laughs> and so, and set yourself up so that if you have no monitors, you can still play well, because that's what you do. You play when you're piled on top of each other. And they fired off that stage like a flamethrower, right? A kind, gentle flamethrower, but it's just like, bam, there it was, right? And so that was the lesson is if you're, don't break the equation without having practice. It takes practice to play on the big stage like that. And the same thing happens here, right? The band will spread out and then they play terribly, right? And I'm like, well, how do you usually stand? And it's like, oh, I usually stand next to so-and-so. Well, go stand next to so-and-so. And then boom, there they are. There's the band again, playing together. You and uh, former WCA alum Vance Powell have something in common, uh-huh. and that is your live sound background. Right. And the live sound thing can really affect in a positive way everything you do in the studio. Can you talk a little bit about that and what your experience has been? Yeah, so um, on a a number of different levels, in terms of developing a business in a small pond like Ithaca, um, doing live sound was how I got introduced to so many different people in the local community and established a relationship with them, right? So... Um, and I suggest this to interns who are thinking of getting started, even if they think that they just want to do recording, I say, you should go out and do live sound because you'll meet everybody in town. You'll meet all the local and touring bands and they all need recordings, right? So you make a positive impression on them. You give them your card, you follow up with them. They remember, oh, you work at a studio too? Well, we, you did great sound for us down at that club. Sure. We'll come check you out. So it's a way of funneling business from the live world into the studio. Secondly, um, when you're doing live sound, you're doing, you learn to, to troubleshoot and fix problems when you're behind schedule and your backside's on fire, right? I mean, that's kind of the live thing. Nothing goes exactly as planned. And so you have to learn how to think on your feet and, uh, and fix broken things like that because everything's, you know, everything's really urgent. You also need to be able to get a good working mix together within the first 16 bars of the first song, whether you got a sound check or not, right? So there's those are some serious skills that work in the studio when you're setting up. Um, and especially if you're an old school guy like me who believes that it should sound like a record before you hit record, right? Because you, you can never change the nature of what you recorded after you've already recorded it. You can make it brighter, you can make it darker, you can distort it, but the essence of the sound is captured when you first record it. So two things, if I have a problem with the snare sound, I go fix the snare drum or I replace the snare drum. I don't sit in here monkeying with an EQ or a compressor. I go fix where the problem is. And then secondly, by the time that the band comes in to listen to their first take, it sounds like their record because 
I just throw it together. It's what I do because I've been doing live sound for 10 years before I did any studio work. So it, I don't even think about it. It's like, well, how do I know if any of these parts and sounds are working? I make a mix. Some bands that have been to other local studios comment to me that one of the, one of the, one of the many differences is that when they listen in the control room, it sounds like the record instead of them imagining, oh, wow, I can't really make any sense of this. And the engineer going, oh, well, yeah, don't worry. It'll all come together later. I was like, well, as a musician, how do you make any decisions about whether you played well or not if the mix sounds like crap, right? And um, also in terms of me as a service provider, I'm making their record. So if it doesn't sound like a finished product, when they come in to listen to their first take, we can't have that all important conversation of, so are you happy with the guitar tones? How do you feel about the interaction between the kick and the snare? Is there too much hi-hat in there? Right? It's like we can have that discussion right out of the gate so that I'm recording the sounds that they want instead of waiting for mix time when I've already essentially captured the nature of all of these instruments. And then I've got to use some crazy digital wizardry to try to make the really smooth bass tone that I recorded a really gnarly, crunchy SVT kind of thing. Hmm. Right? It's like it's better to have that conversation now. Oh, you, that's the way you want it? Well, let's get your SVT out of the truck then. <laughs> That quick interaction between between people in the room to make a decision and not put the decisions off to mix, I love that. You recorded with tape and consoles before, right? It's like, so anyone who had that experience knows that if it doesn't sound the way you want to when you first record it, you're kind of screwed for the whole rest of the project. Yeah. And 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 especially if you if you started with limited tools. Like with me, it's like, so what what tools did I have to fix it later? I owned two compressors a reverb, and I had a four-band EQ on a Soundcraft console, right? So how much fixing am I going to do afterwards with those tools, right? Not, uh, I mean, if you knew the tools, you could do some pretty serious work with them, but that's pretty limited tool set compared to what you can do now, right? So capture it right to begin with. And, and I tell my students this at, at, uh, at school too. It's like, I spend a lot of time about, um, you know, capturing the right sound. Like a lot of these kids are doing audio for moving picture, right? And they, they don't get that the, the quality of the production recording, you know, the, the, if, you don't, if you don't do your booming right on set, then there's a whole world of hurt and pain waiting for you afterwards because you got to ADR the, the voice and you got to tr- get rid of all the noise and blah, 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 blah. And you weren't paying attention and you, you accidentally decided to point the the boom mic towards the airplane instead of the actor and you know all this bad things that just wastes your time whereas if you got the right recording to begin with you know and it goes back to the thing if the band is hearing what makes sense to them if they like the sounds in their headphones that and so that's the other thing about getting the mix together right away is that if the if they love the sounds they're getting they're going to play better Mm -hmm. right like i spend a lot of time when i do live sound I spend the whole sound check, if I get one, doing monitors. Like the whole thing on monitors, making sure that the band sounds awesome on stage and that they're happy and that they love their tones, right? Because that's more important. If, they, if they're inspired to play well, if I've got a band that's playing well on stage, I can be a, an average Joe out front and it's going to translate really well, right? That's really fascinating. I mean, that concept alone in the live realm is huge. It it is huge because if you get it right for them and they're playing well, if you're good, you can quickly pull up a mix that works for the front of house. And and most live sound engineers, I wonder if their emphasis is on the wrong spot. If they're actually. Oh, it totally is. They're trying to cover their own ass. Yep. Yeah. Doing monitors is an annoyance to them. Yeah. Right. And you can tell, I mean, I've been to a billion clubs across the United States and it's one gruff. I wish I had a better job person after another. Right. And monitors are a nuisance to them. And especially when someone like me walked in and I spend the whole sound check doing the monitors and they're they're literally rolling their eyes at me. Right. But yes, just like you said, if you spend the time and the band's really happy and they can hear in a way that's intuitive to them so they can interact with each other as musicians, then if you're an average music, if you're an average front of house person, it sounds pretty good. If you're a really good one, it's banging out front. 
Yeah. Right. And wow. everyone knows it. And it's, and it's the same thing. I took that right into the studio. I spend a lot of time making sure that what they hear in their headphones sounds incredible. Like if, if they're not inspired in headphones, what can I possibly expect them to play like? Right. And at the end of the day, what do I want? I want a performance, right? After 30 years of doing this, it's fairly easy for me to make a good quality recording of somebody. But what I want is someone to speak truth or tell me the story that we all know in our hearts, right? I want, I want, them, I want the performance, mm-hmm. right? And you only get that when you're feeling inspired by what you're listening to, right? So... Well, on that note, I think we should conclude. I, I want to say uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and making the time for me. Oh, what a pleasure talking with you after all this time of listening to your voice coming through my car stereo. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad we're so far away because a, a coffee date would be amazing. Oh, I know. I would totally come out for coffee. Yeah. Cool. All right. All right. Well, catch up with you later. Okay. Take care. See ya. See ya. There you have it. Will Russell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have him on. And uh, yeah, if you ever get out to that part of New York, you should uh, pay Will a visit and go see that church. What an amazing place. Anyhow, we are out of time. Uh, like I say, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And in the meantime, I think it's time to thank everybody. Let's thank our friend Cliff Truesdell for that music and Chuck Smith and Cole Williams for their work on the show. And I uh, want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Focal Monitors, Lawton Audio, Universal Audio, and Audio Technica. And as usual, I want to thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.